Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Inside the Hive. Uh, you're not hearing a familiar voice. Well, maybe it is a familiar voice from the olden days of the OG era of Inside the Hive. But I am your stand-in host today, Nick Bilton. Uh, your usual hosts are off, uh, I don't know, at a beach somewhere, enjoying life, uh, raiding SVB's bank. I-, I have no idea. We have a wonderful guest today, though. Uh, I'm very excited to uh, bring you Zach Carter. Uh, Zach, say hello. Hello, everyone. Uh, can you give us a little a little brief intro of who you are in under 280 characters, Zach? Sure. I am the author of The Price of Peace, Money, Democracy, and the Life of John Maynard Keynes, uh, which from the title you can probably tell is a biography of John Maynard Keynes. And uh, prior to writing that book, I covered banking and politics for uh, about a dozen years, most recently with the Huffington Post, uh, but previously with a place called SNL Financial, which is now part of S&P Global. Well, it's great to have you. We're going to talk today about uh, the absolute and utter shit show that was the last couple of weeks uh, surrounding uh, Silicon Valley Bank and and now what's happening with Credit Suisse and the economy and so on. And I'm, I'm really, really excited to talk to you because you wrote a fantastic piece for Vanity Fair. And let's just dive right in. Um, this Silicon Valley Bank debacle kind of seemed to happen in a period of about 24 to 48 hours where everything was completely fine and everything was completely not. Um, walk us through how this particular bank collapse happened so quickly, or was it something that was already kind of the rot was already there and people in the industry knew or didn't know, or the government knew or didn't know? Like, Explain how we kind of got to where we are uh, in this particular moment. Sure. Uh, you know, The nature of bank failures is uh, that they tend to take people by surprise. People may be aware that there is some kind of problem or difficulty at a financial institution or two, but nobody thinks that it's a crisis until it's way out of hand. And all of a sudden, things get out of hand very quickly. In this case, there are there are sort of three separate failures that I think that I, that I think of with regard to Silicon Valley Bank. You have a broader deregulatory failure from Congress and the Fed. You have a monetary policy failure from the Fed. And then you have the specific peculiarities of the institution, Silicon Valley Bank, a management failure. Um, in SVB's case, the bank had invested in a lot of government bonds and government-backed mortgage bonds, 
which are pretty safe assets so far as default is concerned. You know, if you're just waiting for these bonds to mature and collecting interest payments on them, there's not a whole lot of risk. If, if the government is going to default on its payments to you, you've got bigger problems than your bonds defaulting. Um, however, they are subject to what is called interest rate risk. So if interest rates rise, then suddenly nobody wants to buy those bonds from you. So if you need to sell them in a hurry, you're not going to be able to get very much for them. So that's one half of Silicon Valley Bank's problem. The reason they needed to sell those bonds in a hurry was because they had an enormous amount of uninsured deposits. And uninsured deposits are one of the riskiest forms of funding for a bank. You know, the, the way banking works, you basically borrow money at a low interest rate and you lend it out at a higher interest rate. And the difference between those interest rates is the money that you make. So if people start withdrawing money from your bank, you need to have funds on hand to pay them. And in this case, Silicon Valley Bank specialized in a customer base of tech companies that were parking enormous amounts of money at the bank. I mean, the, the FDIC, the federal government, insures deposits of up to like $250,000. And there were companies like Roku that had nearly half a billion dollars parked at this bank. So if you start having concerns about the stability of the bank, you're going to pull all of that funding at once. That is something that has been known about banking for hundreds of years. Um, it's a very risky form of, of funding. And so... A lot of these tech companies started having trouble over the last year or so as the Federal Reserve raised interest rates. So they were just drawing down their deposits steadily anyway in the normal course of business. People started having concerns about the stability of the bank, and then they started withdrawing them en masse. And the bank couldn't sell its assets at reasonable prices in order to get the funds it needed to meet those withdrawals. So money was going out the door. They couldn't sell assets to create new money to make those payments, and the bank failed. Um, it's an extraordinarily poor. Uh, it's just extraordinarily poor risk management by the bank, but in an environment, a deregulatory environment and an interest rate environment created by the federal government. So you have these sort of interdependent screw-ups where it's not just that the bank screwed up, although the bank did screw up. It's not just that the Fed screwed up, although the Fed did screw up. All of these things together uh, create an environment where it's very easy for banks to do stupid things. And, of course, we know that banks do stupid things all the time. Those of us who covered the financial crisis in 2008 know that a lot of dumb things happened there and that a lot of dumb things were going to happen again because that's how banking works. One question I have is I would not uh, consider myself the uh, the best investor on the planet. Um, uh, I did buy Bitcoin early and and sold <laughs> sold at the peak, but that was but but here's the example of how here's the example of how dumb I am when it comes to investing. I bought one Bitcoin, so uh, um, I you know otherwise I probably would be sitting on the beach with Emily uh, and whoever else is uh, there with them. They're not really on the beach. I'm just making that up. But um, but I understand and understood. Uh, over the past couple of years because of all the money that was um, injected into the economy through the pandemic and so on, that interest rates were going to rise. And yet, why is it that these bankers didn't realize that? Or did they and think that it was going to be okay with the bonds? Like, well, how how did that happen? It, it, look, it's a very difficult question to answer, uh, particularly when, you know, you can hedge against interest rate risks. There are products called interest rate swaps that you can buy uh, as, as a banker. So if you're worried about the prospect of rates rising, you can protect yourself against that risk. Uh, and Silicon Valley Bank just didn't do that. You know, we're, we're going to see a lot of different screw-ups over the next couple of weeks. The problems at Silicon Valley Bank are going to be related to problems at Credit Suisse. They're going to be related to problems at First Republic, but related in a sort of broad philosophical way. It's not like 
there are going to be direct creditor relation, investor relationships between all of these institutions. But what you're going to see in each case is somebody doing something really stupid. <laughs> and, and that is just something that happens in banking. There are a lot of banks. There have always been – banking is the process of taking on risk for profit. And when uncertain events you – know, we live in an uncertain world and when unexpected events arise that bankers did not prepare for, all kinds of bad things can happen. Um, that's why – a phenomenon called bank regulation was invented. Um, and it's also why, you know, prior to the 1980s, the Federal Reserve was very careful about raising interest rates very quickly. Um, there's a very good piece in, a, in the Democracy, a Journal of Ideas by uh, Chris Hughes on Arthur Burns, who was a much maligned uh, Federal Reserve chairman from the 1970s. But one of the really interesting things about this, uh, this profile that came out a few months ago was just how obsessed this guy was with the prospect of financial crisis. Uh, he thought that raising interest rates would cause a significant repricing of really important assets across the global financial system and would bring a whole bunch of bank failures. And we've really stopped talking about that with regard to what the Fed does. You know, when we talk about Paul Volcker and the successful fight against inflation in the 1980s, we forget that a key tool in the fight against inflation for Volcker was mass bank failures and then mass bank bailouts. Uh, there's a series of banking crises across the 1980s, the most famous of which is the savings and loan crisis. But all of these are basically a product of raising interest rates very quickly. And I think the fact that we have started seeing the Fed predominantly as an institution that uses interest rates to fight inflation and not as an institution that's designed to preserve financial stability. And remember, the Fed is created in 1913 not to manage inflation but to serve as a lender of last resort to the banking system. You know, I, I think that's a significant change that we need to need to think a little bit more about. Um, interest rates, in particular, I don't think are a totally great way to manage inflation. I mean, they they function by causing layoffs. So <laughs> you can say well, we're well, raising I, I interest rates. Get, I want to sure. get to the to the inflation question because I th find it totally fascinating, and and I would love to hear your thoughts on it. But I just want to stick with SVB for one minute here. And one question I do have is. 2008, we had the banking crisis that took place there where, you know, I remember I was at the New York Times at the time and I remember uh, one, I think it was Andrew Ross Sorkin had said to me, you know, there is, there was five days of the economy that could, that could make it collapse if the decisions weren't correct and there would be pitchforks in the street. And it really did feel like, you know, there was, it was a real moment in time, Ed, that could have, could have been a complete and utter disaster. Uh, and, um, and so after after that we did we got the Todd Frank bill and that was essentially designed to avoid this from happening. But yet the CEO of SVB, who from the looks of it seems just like your typical evil banker, uh, had had thought and correct me if I'm wrong, maybe he's the nicest guy on the planet, but he does not seem to be uh, very thoughtful. But um, from everything I've read, he was the one that was pushing against these bills. Why? Did he just think he was smarter than everyone else and that we didn't need them anymore? Like, if we'd have kept that, would would we have not – would we not be in the situation we're in today? Like, walk us through that. I, I think the, the short answer is that, yes, if, if we had not deregulated banks like Silicon Valley Bank in 2018 – um, it's very likely that we would not be in the situation we are today, or at the very least, the situation we are in today um, would be not nearly so precarious. And here's why. Um, after Dodd-Frank, we implemented a series of tighter controls on the banking system that limited the banking system's ability to take on excessive amounts of risk. 
There were new capital requirements, which limited how much borrowed money banks could operate. They had to raise money through equity by selling stock rather than through debt. Um, And they had to keep a certain amount of cash on hand, liquidity, to be able to meet withdrawals when things like, you know, mass withdrawals happen. Starting in 2015, Greg Becker, who's the CEO of Silicon Valley Bank, went to Congress and said, look, I know my banking industry really well. I know my clients really well. My bank does not pose a systemic risk, and it's ridiculous for me to be subjected to the same systemic risk protocols that these multi-trillion dollar behemoths like Wells Fargo and J.P. Morgan are being subjected to. And for a lot of people in Congress, this seemed very intuitive. It was like, okay, these guys aren't these too big to fail monsters. You know, if they collapse, it'll be like a small problem, but it won't be like a, a problem for the, the broader economy. So let's let them take some more risk. Um, and instead of subjecting banks with $50 billion in assets or more to these, to these rules, they allowed banks with up to $250 billion in assets to be exempted from them. So $250 billion and above, you have these tighter standards. So Silicon Valley Bank, you know, grows its balance sheet enormously after this this deregulation bill is passed. So because it's got two hundred billion dollars worth of, of wiggle room, the thing that's really astonishing about his statement from twenty fifteen is that this debacle shows that he did not understand his customer base at all. Um, <laughs> he was operating with some of the risk, one of the riskiest forms of funding, uninsured deposits, at extraordinarily high levels. Uh, you know, more than ninety five percent of the deposits at Silicon Valley Bank were uninsured. Uh, you know, I think it's it's not unheard of for banks to use uninsured deposits, but the typical ratio is something around 40%, 45% of deposits being uninsured. The vast majority of them, or the majority of them usually at the vast majority of banks are insured deposits. When you're operating with 95%, I mean, this is money in very large amounts that rich people are going to pull when, when there is trouble, and they have pulled money like this throughout history. Um, so... He not only didn't understand his clients, he also didn't understand that his clients were going to have trouble if interest rates rose. So on one side of the balance sheet, they make this big bet on interest rates that interest rates are going to stay low by purchasing all these securities without hedging the risk. On the other side, on the funding side, they just don't realize that all of these tech companies that do business with them are going to have trouble when interest rates go up, that they're, they're not super profitable. And so they're going to be drawing down their balances as the economy, you know, as interest rates rise and, and their access to funding decreases. So you have this extraordinary statement from him in 2015 saying, I know what I'm doing and this bank is not a systemic risk. And then on Sunday night, the bank failing because he didn't know what he was doing and all of the three top federal regulators, the FDIC, the Federal Reserve and the Treasury Department saying, actually, your bank is a systemic risk and we're going to take emergency measures right now to protect your depositors. Um, it's, it's really – it it's is really extraordinarily bad bank management. Um, but this sort of thing happens all the time. But it's OK because he, he – it's OK because he's in Hawaii now at his house and he's relaxing by the beach. And so we should, we should be thankful that he landed on his feet. He made $45.7 million in the five years between uh, when that deregulation law was passed and his bank failed. And he sold $3.6 million in stock just a couple weeks before the bank went under. Um, you know, it's like cartoon villain stuff. Three, two, one. Political Breakdown is a daily politics podcast from KQED in San Francisco that goes deep into the issues you care about. 
I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Look, 2024 is going to get weird. Who decides when there's been an insurrection or not? We're still in the innovation phase of AI. And that is where you see that they're not actually being equitable and trying to build a utopia where we can all use drugs happily together. (laughs) But whatever happens this election year, the KQED politics team is in this with you. Political Breakdown. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. One of the things that has happened since is that we have started to see other banks now failing and the prospect of even more banks failing. And and it again, it it feels like the the thing that the both regulators and the bankers either don't understand or don't care about is is just how intertwined the global economy is and and the perception versus the reality of how the public sees the banking system and so on. And and so, I mean, I rem- I'm in Los Angeles, and in Brentwood, there were you know local signature banks and so on that that had lines of people waiting on the Sunday that the that SVB. Uh, it was just it was bananas, you know. It was like you know unbelievable to watch. And how many banks do we expect are going to be affected by this? And how um, and is it because there is this perception, you know, that everyone panics and they think, oh, well, if that happened to that bank, it's going to happen to my bank and so on. Or is it because that there is a rot in the entire system uh, similar to the one that SVB had? Both. You know, I, I think you're going to see uh, Moody's and uh, and some other credit rating agencies have been uh, taking action, downgrading a, a lot of these regional banks, these $50 billion to $250 billion sized banks. Um, on the grounds that these banks are actually kind of a uniquely risky in investment right now um, because of the 2018 law. Uh, you know, it's interesting that we're not seeing the giant, you know, banks that we think of as being too big to fail running into trouble right now um, because they're subjected to these tighter rules. And, and I think there's there's two sides to that. There's one, the actual technicalities of the rules being being more relaxed against these banks makes them more vulnerable, but also just people – Understanding that they are uh, that they are more vulnerable makes people more prone to panic about them. Um, so you have a psychological effect in addition to the the sort of raw technical effect. And and it, you know it doesn't help when you have ratings agencies saying you know watch out these banks may not be a safe bet anymore. So you know there's a bank First Republic that's been in trouble this week. Um, doesn't appear to be any direct contagion from SVB or from Signature Bank or from Credit Suisse, but they do rely on a lot of uninsured deposits. I think about 67 percent of their deposits are uninsured. So people are starting to freak out, thinking, well, if other banks that have had high levels of uninsured deposits are in trouble, maybe my bank's in trouble, and they're pulling their money. And now First Republic is desperately trying to shore up funding. Um, the, the, the short story is we don't know how bad this problem is, whether we are at the beginning of something or at the end. Um, nobody really understands the way lag times in monetary policy work. So. What happened with SVB Bank was clearly a direct consequence of bad management, but an indirect consequence of the Fed raising rates over the past year. So is this the downstream effect of actions in March of last year from the Federal Reserve? Is it a downstream action of actions in September, December? We don't really know. And so the point of raising rates, of course, is to tighten financial conditions, essentially to make it harder to be a bank. And we don't know if if things are getting really hard to be a bank right now because of something that just happened or something that happened a full year ago. But we do know that people are starting to, to really worry about it. And once the confidence in the system has been lost, it's very hard to reestablish it without 
a great deal of very powerful public action from from the governments of the world. Um, you know, as we saw in 2008, when when the government let Lehman fail, things got really out of hand really quickly. Um, and yeah. I, th- I think regulators have have learned that lesson, at least in the United States. But you can see everybody wants to try to create a situation where the market bears as much of the damage as possible and the public sector takes on the least amount of risk. Um, and I think trying to thread that needle and, and finding the exact right balance um, often can put you in a situation where you're not communicating as a public official to, to the system that you really are going to stand behind it and make sure that, that you know, the whole thing doesn't burn down, um, which is you know, fundamentally at this point, we're now talking about a confidence issue with the banking system. Um, when you see different banks with different risk profiles and different sets of problems running into trouble at the same time, it is, it is time to, to shore up confidence in the overall sector. So one thing that, um, that I'm curious about is it, during the pandemic uh, was $8 trillion that were, w- was injected into the system, which of course will, will change everything, right? It, 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 it means that we are going to end up in the situation we ended up in. And, and, and I totally understand, look, it's a panic moment. We, it's something we haven't experienced in 100 years. The government has to come up with solutions to ensure that the economy continues to operate and, and run and, and the whole thing doesn't, doesn't break down. But it seems almost inevitable that we are going to end up in a system where inflation is, runs out of hand and we are going to have to solve that. And the way that the the, the Fed has been solving it is by raising interest rates uh, quite rapidly. Um, and I mean, there was a point in during the the middle of the pandemic, early pandemic, where you know uh, mortgage is were at, was it like a thirty year low or the interest rates? I forget. It was like around two percent or something, just astronomically insane. Money was so cheap, um, but it seems to me that they. You know, once you start raising interest rates, you end up in situations like this with the bond failures and so on. What could they have done differently, and what will they do going forward? Because they've already said they're going to stop raising rates, but then does that stop inflation? So how do they how do they manage this kind of seesaw problem that they have created, of course, themselves, but but needs to at the same time be managed so that we don't end up in a situation where the hundred dollar bill is worth you know. Uh, a dollar or or whatever would happen. Well, to some extent, and a very moderate extent, I would dis- dispute your premise here that some sort of inflationary uh, debacle was inevitable once we were injecting $8 trillion of rescue money into the system. Uh, you know, the United States is a $22 trillion economy. Um, $8 trillion over a couple of years is, is real money, but it's uh, – it, it doesn't necessarily have to lead to some sort of hyperinflationary debacle. And if you remember after 2008, I mean, we injected quite a bit of money into the system and we had quite a few people prominently declaring that hyperinflation was just around the corner. The United States was going to be like you know, Zimbabwe or the Weimar Republic. And we not only didn't see hyperinflation, we didn't see inflation at all. We saw persistent deflation, in fact, for much of the, the Great Recession. That's, that's what the Great Recession was. Why did, why did we not see it, though, back then? I think probably <laughs> in large part because uh, the the demand that was destroyed during the financial crisis, uh, you know, we just didn't spend enough money to get uh, to to get the general public back to a position of serious purchasing power, particularly yeah. with the banking system uh, so decimated by a financial crisis. You know, lending was not occurring, so you you weren't seeing business formation and the job creation that comes with that, the paychecks that you would expect the market economy to uh, to create. 
Um, so you needed more support from the public sector to to fight, you know, to, to basically create spending for folks where where the spending didn't exist. In this crisis, you know, we we did support the the public sector and consumer pocketbooks directly in a much more aggressive fashion. And that's why we didn't have a 10-year recession outside of the pandemic, even though I think the damage to the economy was much, much greater from the pandemic than it was from the uh, the financial crisis of 2008. I mean, we just shut down a lot of the retail economy yeah. um, it, it, in, in 2020 for long periods of time. Um, and there was, in fact, a, you know, a deadly virus going around. So you know, th- there were reasons that, that that were going to – there were things that were going to hurt the economy independently of, of the, you know, the, the public decision-making. It wasn't just like some bankers went crazy here. Um, so you know, the, the money did, did prevent, I think, mass joblessness. Um, I think where you have a, a, you know, sort of a mismatch between supply and demand is in specific sectors uh, you know, that are shut down as a result of the pandemic. So – you know, for a, a long period of time, you know, cars were really expensive. I think they still are. Um, but this is because of weird stuff that people didn't see coming. Like there weren't enough microchips being made. A lot of microchip processing companies just stopped making the chips. Cars need a lot of chips, so you couldn't make cars. And when you couldn't make cars and you have this high level of demand in the economy, the price of cars goes way up. Um, so it wasn't like we just had way too much purchasing power in the economy. We had too much purchasing power relative to these specific sectors, and those have been changing over the course of two years because people's spending habits change over the course of two years, particularly coming out of a pandemic. Like, everybody moved at one point in time, and they needed new appliances. Now nobody's moving, and so they're buying more appliances because they're staying in their homes. So different sorts of um, consumer habits have been changing. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, we'll know more about the specifics of inflation on a sector-by-sector basis when the whole thing is over, and it's it's easy to easier to look back on on the situation. Um, but clearly, you know, there is some demand supply mismatch, which is why you have inflation. Um, the question then arises what to do about that inflation that exists. Um, I think choosing between 7 or 8% inflation for a couple of years and 7 or 8% unemployment, for me myself, I would gladly take the inflation over the unemployment. I mean, the, 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 damage to people's livelihoods from uh, sustained job loss is, is really serious. And when we talk about managing inflation through higher interest rates, we're really talking about managing inflation through higher unemployment rates. So we're saying a few million people in the economy are going to pay an enormous price so that all of us can have somewhat cheaper eggs. Um, and I, I think that's a, a measure of last resort if you can come up with other ways of dealing with inflation. The trick is we haven't managed inflation in any other way since the 1980s. So nobody who is involved in policymaking has been thinking creatively about how to keep inflation under control for quite some time. Um, What we have done over the last year in response to the war in Ukraine has been to try to manage energy prices more directly. So in Germany, there's a program developed by an economist named Isabella Weber. They call it a price break, where they are just directly regulating the price of natural gas. Uh, and in the United States, they have been regulating the supply of oil. So you may have noticed over the summer, things started getting really out of hand with gas prices in particular by early summer. And then gas prices cooled off. And politically in particular, inflation really stopped being such uh, an albatross for the Democratic Party in particular around the summer. That was because the Biden administration was selling a lot of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. So they were introducing more oil to the market to lower the price of oil. So 
there's, there's also a broader project with um, the price of Russian oil. They're trying to put a global price cap on oil. This is for obviously for uh, foreign policy purposes. The idea is to keep uh, the supply of oil coming, but without allowing the Russian government to profit too much from it. Um, so you see these sort of attempts in specific sectors with specific commodities to manage prices um, without resorting to interest rates. That's really hard, and it requires a lot of knowledge of these sectors. It requires knowledge of how they're structured. So like the Russian oil price cap, for instance, operates through the insurance system. It's a very complicated mechanism. You need people who really know what they're doing to implement this stuff. And unfortunately, we just don't have people who know how to do that right now. Um, but I think it's time to start doing some research and getting some data. So when you now look at what's happening, we're, we're you know, recording on a Tuesday, and uh, I believe it was yesterday. Uh, it's, all, it's all a blur. Credit Suisse. We had the Credit Suisse bank that was acquired. Is this a global, you know, you're talking about Ukraine, you're talking about uh, oil, you're talking about the, the, I wrote extensively about the car uh, issue during the pandemic and the chips, which were created in Asia, but were a result of, of copper mining in, you know, all around the globe that was halted. And we are in a clearly, and I know you've written about this quite extensively, uh, interconnected world from an economic standpoint and so on. Is the Credit Suisse debacle part was you know was the first butterfly wings of that the results of the SCP or it, it, was it something that was just brought to light as a result of it? How, how how is this all interconnected and and how do we ensure that this doesn't lead to another global financial crisis? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think you see with Credit Suisse, there's no direct relationship to what happened at SVB Bank. You know, it, it's it's not like Credit Suisse was like a big depositor at SVB. So when SVB failed, then people started freaking out and worrying about Credit Suisse. I mean, you see that kind of contagion in banking panics. Um, and so far, at least, I think we have avoided that direct bank-to-bank freakout. Um, the problem at Credit Suisse is sort of related philosophically. Uh, it's, 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 it's a similar type of problem. You know, they don't have you know, these huge tech investments that SVB has. But Credit Suisse is a pretty lousy bank. I mean, to be <laughs> to be blunt about it, it's always been bad. Um, yeah, it, they they just have scandal after scandal. I mean, going back to like you know hiding Nazi money. Um, Credit Suisse was one of the banks that the U the, the U.S. government really didn't go after banks after two thousand eight and two thousand nine. It really issued uh, prosecutions as much as it possibly could. But even Credit Suisse ended up pleading guilty to a felony to the U.S. Department of Justice. Uh, you know, they have problems with tax evasion, uh, just all, all sorts of things, one, one thing after another. And so they're always sort of viewed as one of the weaker banks in the system. The, the sort of immediate issue for Credit Suisse was that the Saudi royal government said they were not going to make an investment into Credit Suisse while also saying, but they have, you know, no concerns about the stability of the bank. You know, that's a, a difficult statement to take at face value. If you have no concerns about the stability of the bank, why are you not making an investment in it? Um, it, was a, it was a very clear signal from a major international investor that they believed Credit Suisse was in trouble and that its problems were bigger than what the Saudi royal family was willing to, uh, to deal with. And after that, you see a lot of depositors pulling their money. So, yeah. you know – the problems in both of these cases, like SVB is a pretty lousy bank. It does really – it takes big risks and does stupid things. Credit Suisse is a lousy bank. It takes big risks and it does stupid things. And when you 
create a more difficult environment for banking, which is what happens when interest rates go up. You know, interest rates going up doesn't just immediately cause layoffs. It causes layoffs by making banking harder to do so that companies can't get access to funding. So when you make banking harder to do, the worst banks are the first banks to hell. But wait a second. Aren't all banks pretty lousy banks and do stupid things? I mean, this is the history of the banking system in the United States specifically. It feels like Yes, there are banks that have lousier, stupider people running them and that make stupider decisions, but but aren't they all they all have some issue like these, right? To, to some extent. I mean, there's a, there's a funny joke like when when banks get in trouble, people say things, "Ah, they made the classic mistake. They borrowed short and they lent long." Um, you know, borrowing money that has to be paid back in a short period of time, making investments that uh, pay off over a long period of time. That 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 can be a way to get your bank in trouble. It's also a way to make a lot of money. I mean, most uh, <laughs> most banking yeah. takes that that sort of structure. Um, yeah, banking is inherently the process of taking on risk for profit. So, yes, to some extent, this is an issue. But there are elaborate mechanisms that people have developed over time to mitigate that risk. Uh, so you don't, for instance, have to have ninety five percent of your deposits concentrated in uh, uninsured deposits. You can you can have insured deposits. And you can still make money. You just won't make as much money uh, because you, know, you you make more money when you take on more risk. Um, the deregulation law from 2018 is, is a really fascinating example because it was pitched as sort of a way for these small and mid- medium-sized banks to make more loans. So really, it wasn't a favor for guys like Greg Becker, who were going to pay themselves $45 million. It was a favor for you know some farmer in Virginia. Um, who was going to get a loan from one of these regional banks. I think that was a really misleading account of how this was going to work. Um, what you're really doing is just allowing banks to take on more risk. It, it wasn't that they were going to be able to make more loans. It was that they were going to be able to make loans that scored more profit for the bank in the short term by generating higher longer-term risks. Um, so, yes, all banks are risky. Um, are all banks as risky as SVB and Credit Suisse? No. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. He's never held elected office, but he's still running for president. There's nothing in the United States Constitution that says that you have to go to Congress first and then Senate second or be a governor before you're elected to the presidency of the United States. A conversation with RFK Jr. on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. One question I have, I want to kind of switch gears a little bit here, is that um, it's crypto. So the when you look at the, the crypto markets, you know, there was, of course, it got to a height of, of uh, Bitcoin got to the height of 69,000 at one point and, um, uh, and then, of course, plummeted uh, due to a, a, a number of reasons. Um, and, um, you know, NFTs and, and all the, you know, it was all mm-hmm. hype and everything. But over the last uh, couple of weeks, Bitcoin itself uh, and the entire market has seen a little bit of a comeback. So you had uh, it was, I believe, down to around twenty thousand right before SVB, um, and then now it's up to around twenty eight thousand. Is this the moment that we you think that crypto will make a comeback, or do you think crypto is not? You know, it, because people the whole point of it, you know, back in the day was that it wasn't going to be 
run by stupid banks doing stupid things. Uh, uh, and I mean, of course, it has a million of its own problems that we could spend hours and days talking about. But do you think that this gives crypto a little bit more of what it was hoping for and what it had before its own collapse um, earlier this year and last year? I mean, crypto is sort of like the right-wing kind of Friedrich Hayek uh, free market response to the 2008 financial crisis. The idea is that if banks and governments keep screwing things up, let's do an entire form of money that just doesn't require government oversight and government management. And you understand why this would be, uh, you know, appealing to to, to certain people. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of an attempt to mimic the gold standard, which was the monetary system that existed in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, uh, where governments did have some management control over the the monetary system, but the value of currency was tied to a certain amount of gold, and that could not change. Um, and this was viewed as sort of a way to prevent inflation, the same way that there can only be so many Bitcoins in the system, right? So you're never going to print so many Bitcoins um, that uh, that your investment will be devalued due to inflation. Um, you know, I think I think it's, a, it's very difficult to say that the crypto industry functioned as a currency over the past decade. I think that dream died several years ago, and crypto has instead been functioning as a kind of speculative investment. And as a purely speculative investment with no attachment to industry, production, even business services, um, it becomes uniquely susceptible to swings in market confidence. And uh, to some extent, ironically, I think kind of a creature of the Federal Reserve. Um, as soon as the Federal Reserve started raising interest rates, you saw the price of Bitcoin and all of these crypto instruments collapse. Um, so, if but why, wait, how why why is that? I, I'm curious. I don't understand why that happens. If the if if the Fed starts raising interest, rate, wouldn't you imagine that that the that these crypto assets would go the opposite direction? Well, I, <laughs> I mean, I, I think it depends on on, uh, on on who you talk to on these things. I mean, my my view uh, it, in this particular in this particular case is that because there is no underlying asset to the, the crypto mechanism. You know, it's, it's just a token that people are, are betting on. Um, there's nothing to liquidate if the economy gets into trouble. You know, if, you, if you own a stock or a bond, there is at least some attachment to a real economic process and a real economic asset um, that eventually can be liquidated you know, at, at a loss, but you, you have some, some form of protection. Um, with crypto, it's just a purely speculative instrument and there's no uh, there's no sort of public entity to maintain confidence when confidence is lost. So when you see the sort of animal spirits taking over and people starting to feel, oh my goodness, uh, you know, tether's not worth something or Dogecoin is not worth anything. There's no lender of last resort. There's no you know mechanism involved to stop prices from falling. And so there's no system in place to stop a essentially a run on the currency. Whereas in the banking system, you have the Federal Reserve, you have the FDIC, you have a public backstop to say, whoa, 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 this stops here. Um, even SVB Bank, you know, it's taken over by the FDIC, the bank fails, its depositors are all being made whole by the federal government. And there is no crypto, there's no crypto version of that. Right. Yeah. And, and yeah. by design, I mean, the whole point of crypto is supposed to say we don't want the government in here. Um, 
meddling in the value of this currency. But what that means is that it's uniquely susceptible to crises of confidence. Now, when I say it depends on who you talk to, each one of these crypto devices has its own, you know, specific mechanism, device, whatever that that it says is is mm-hmm. designed to make it yeah. you know, impervious to risk due to its you know in in the market. But ultimately, they all rely on on market mechanisms, and eventually, you get to a point where people lose confidence in the market and crypto is helpless. Um, so it, will prices bounce back? I mean, it's a speculative investment. It, it, they very well may. I mean, and I, I think in crypto, it's really hard to get a good read on what's going on because the industry is so opaque. So we don't know what the volume of trading looks like right now, for instance. And, and we have no real way of predicting where things are going to go because there's no like balance sheet yeah. to look at. There's no earnings report. There's no – with SVB, we know – we know the situation of the bank. We know why it's bad. Uh, and there's a story we can tell to investors about why they should or shouldn't put their money there. With Bitcoin, it's like, well, you know, it's kind of like the <laughs> oldest cryptocurrency, I guess. <laughs> um, uh, you know, they're, they're, yeah. you, you can't create the same sort of um, you know, narrative to build confidence. Um, I have a last few questions for you. Um, how does the collapse of SVB affect the venture capital tech industry uh, as a whole? Does it slow down investing? Does it have no impact? You know, there's an irony to what happened where you have all these VCs, uh, David Sachs and and Peter Thiel and people who who have lamented the gov- U.S. government and and its involvement in everything and that there should be no regulation and this, that, and the other. And then as soon as their money was potentially being affected. They were like, I need it back. The FDIC has to step in and raise how much they're going to give me and and so on. But at the same time, there was also a slightly terrifying moment that happens for some of these tech startups where they can't cover payroll and potentially. And, um, you know, these VC firms that, you know, were using SVB to get cash quickly to be able to give to new clients and so on and so forth. Uh, has been that that's now been affected and changed. It, does this have an impact? You think on Silicon Valley? Oh, I think it certainly will. I think it's hard to predict exactly. You know what the the scope of the of the change will be, but clearly, one of the problems at SVB is just that the tech sector was already having a lot of trouble, um, and part of that is just the nature of of tech. I mean, these are investments in new companies that are supposed to be new ideas, new ways of making money, and they're not going to be profitable at first. And you don't know how long it will take until they get profitable. And, may, and a lot of them are never going to be profitable. I mean, a lot of business I, businesses don't pan out, right? Um, so you're inherently in the, supporting In the tech space, this. it's about 90, 98% of them that don't pan out. And, and that's why, you know, tech is the first industry to really take it on the chin when interest rates go up. Um, you know, it's not an established business with decades of track records and multiple lines of, uh, you know, revenue that it can rely on when, when costs go up and funding becomes more difficult to obtain. Um, so you know, the tech sector is already under a lot of pressure. But I think this, you know, the, the arrangement with Silicon Valley Bank is very peculiar, right? I mean, most yeah. people with... Most institutions with half a billion dollars in cash to spare don't just stick it in a non-interest-bearing checking account. Um, that's a <laughs> stupid use of money, right? Yeah. Um, even if you have payroll to meet, you know, you don't have half a billion dollars in payroll to meet every week. Um, so you would think they would be investing this money in other places and, and having it go to work. So th- there's some sort of odd arrangement here where these startups are getting funding through the VCs and then the VCs are – 
you know, for some reason insisting that these companies park their money at this one bank with extraordinarily poor risk controls. Um, you know, I, certainly I don't think like the Silicon Valley Bank arrangement is going to like persist uh, going forward. But, you know, the unfortunate thing about about raising rates and about economic slowdowns, which is, you know, the Fed is trying to impose an economic slowdown in order to fight inflation, um, is is that it it's just harder to run a business and it's harder to it's harder to get a good idea off the ground. Um, it's also harder to get a bad idea off the ground. And there are a lot of bad ideas in tech. I think basically most of the crypto industry, if not the whole thing, is a bad idea and it it doesn't cause me great distress philosophically to see that sector sort of going away, although, it, of course, I've, it's really terrible to watch people lose their savings in, in these kinds of speculative routes. Some people. It's, it's, it's some people we can, you know, we can not feel bad for. The, the, the trillionaires out there, we know right. who they are. <laughs> well, and, and that's, you know, that's part of the problem with SVB and the bank rescues. It, you know, I think it's easier to feel for a company like Roku that had half a billion dollars parked at uh, at SVB. You know, you don't want to see this company just go out of business Correct. Yeah. because that's that sucks. Um, then, like the you know these venture capitalists who had ten million dollars parked there for their personal account, like why did you do that? You know, you're smart enough and rich enough to know better here. Um, yeah. But the nature of of rescue operations and financial crises is that you know you need to. <laughs> <laughs> to, to you need stop to rescue everyone. You, right. you don't. You don't. Uh, you don't save just a few people from the sinking ship. You have to save them all, even if you don't necessarily want to. Yeah. And and I think you know the role there for for people who are concerned about uh, about justice and fairness, which you know, we should all be concerned about justice and fairness. I think there's a role there for for you know the the criminal justice system for prosecutions for in investigations uh, for for individuals who did things that were inappropriate and against the law i mean you should you should pursue the, the government should pursue cases against those people yeah um, but you don't need to you know wipe out millions of dollars or billions of dollars uh, just to make sure that you're that you know a handful of rich people aren't uh, aren't getting too much at the front end of this arrangement I have two last questions for you uh, one is a little pie in the sky one but we'll start with the penultimate question which is we learned something from the Great Depression. We learned something from the 1980s financial crisis, from the 2000 uh, and and there are usually, often not usually, there are always changes that that happen in the system as a result of this. What have, what will we have learned from this? And and do you foresee changes, Dodd Frank coming back, or something new that will avoid something like this happening again? Or was it because we have seemingly stop this from being a massive crisis that it just will be like a little road bump in the economy as far as the government is concerned and onwards that we go? You know, at least so far in this crisis, um, a lot of the things that were put in place after 2008 seem to be holding up pretty well. The, the too big to fail side of the banking system has not failed. So you're not seeing the JP Morgans and the, the Wells Fargo's collapsing Yet, <laughs> um, if if the crisis continues to accelerate um, and expand, you you could see those banks getting getting in trouble eventually. But uh, even the fact that they're not the first to the first up against the wall, sort of, uh, I I think suggests that some of the regulatory measures taken after two thousand eight were really productive and and have had the desired effect. You can never fully protect the banking system against absolutely every risk possible. Um, but so far, a lot of those risk uh, controls have have proved effective. Where they, they haven't worked is with these regional banks, which pose different kinds of risks. And we just 
took the you know the 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 risk management controls off of those uh, for no real reason in 2018. Um, you know, within five years of deregulating the regional banks, we have a regional banking crisis. Um, so I, I think there's a pretty clear regulatory response that I I think I'm I'm optimistic enough to believe Congress will learn that lesson um, and and take take the steps to re-regulate the the section of the of the financial system that was deregulated. The broader point, though, is is on interest rates and and how to manage inflation because you know there are real reasons why the Fed has been raising rates. Inflation is a problem, and people are worried that inflation could get worse. Um, you know, I said earlier the choice between eight percent unemployment and eight percent inflation isn't a hard one for me. I'd way rather see eight percent inflation, um, but the choice between constantly accelerating inflation uh, and eight percent unemployment is harder to is harder to make. And and you know. There are people of good faith at the Fed who are, are worried about that outcome. Um, and I think the harder lesson to learn here for, for the financial system is that the way we've been managing inflation for the last 40 years is not very effective. I mean, even yeah. if you like the idea of using interest rates to manage inflation, here we are in a banking crisis where now we have to basically turn that process off if we want to avoid uh, widespread bank failures. Uh, I mean, the Fed's going to stop raising rates at the rate that it has been, if, unless it's totally lost its mind. Um, because I think this, they already announced that they were going to stop for a while. Yeah. yeah. Um, so clearly, you know, the, the the mechanism itself is just not particularly efficient, even if even if you're in love with the mechanism itself. So I think, you know, the the sort of utopian big, you know, grand lesson to learn would would be that, you know, we need a, a broader set of tools. We need to be able to look at inflation in a in a, a more, you know, under a microscope and pick sectors and and deal with uh, data and commodities in ways that um, we just haven't tried to do for a long time. You know, the the idea that just by dialing up interest rates a little or dialing them back, we can manage the entire economy. It's it's a beautiful dream. It would be really nice <laughs> if it were just that easy. Yeah. Uh, but I think, unfortunately, the world is more complicated and, and you need expert knowledge of this stuff. Um, and the Fed has a lot of economists. I mean, they hire a lot of economists. And I think, uh, I think they just need to be studying different things now. All right, last question for you. It's a little far out there, but I'm going to throw it out there. So um, <clears throat> chat GTP, GTP4, AI, um, I've been covering technology for 20 years, and I've never, ever seen anything that has scared the shit out of me more than it. Um, I think that it is going to uh, – the job loss is going to be massive, um, and it is going to happen – uh, as fast as lightning when it ha when it starts once it start it hasn't started yet I mean it has a little bit we started to see a couple of instances of like you know CNET reporters being being let go and they're you know they're using some algorithm to write little stories instead of them and and you're starting to see like instances of people using ChatGTP instead of accountants and lawyers and so on and so forth but the speed with which it is coming is, I think, going to be unlike anything in human history, quite frankly. Um, and that's not just me being hyperbolic. And the job loss and the impact on the economy and the banking system. And when you look at the papers talking about some of the jobs that will be the first to go, they are the banking system. Um, uh, do you worry about what will happen as a result of both from an economic standpoint, from a banking standpoint, from all of these different things? As a result of AI, or are you just not there yet? Yes and no, uh, which I know is a weasel answer. Um, 
But uh, you know, automation is not new to the banking system, and, and AI is just like warp speed automation, right? I mean, even the ATM is a form of automation, and it, it did, in fact, reduce the number of bank teller jobs. Um, did that become a crisis for the banking system or the broader, broader economy? I don't think so. Uh, I mean, look, look at a company like Vanguard, for instance. You know, the, the whole appeal of a company like Vanguard is that they don't do a whole lot of fancy uh, risk projections and analysis. They invest in index funds, uh, and they, they keep their overhead as low as possible. Um, and that became enormously popular with people because they said, yeah, what's the point of, like, trying to beat the market? Why don't we just invest in the whole market? Um, the Vanguard situation is interesting because they have cut costs so much that Vanguard now has some of the worst customer service in the financial industry, and they're losing clients uh, over it. Um, so I, I think, you know, if you can get AI to to give you good customer service, um, then yeah, there's 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 a potential to lose a lot of um, jobs here, um, but. You know, do you do you want to be having a large part of the banking system paying out high salaries to people to to do clerical tasks? I mean, that that doesn't seem like it's inherently an important aspect of the economy and the the, the financial system. It would be more productive without some of that, and uh, and we could we could spend the wealth, uh, you know, on uh, more vacations for people and higher wages for for other workers. Um, now. It all depends on whether the automation is actually any good, <laughs> you know. Um, and and you know, I, when I have played around with it, uh, you know, trying to do financial journalism leads and stuff, I'm not too worried about being like AI'd out of a job just yet on that stuff. Yet, yet, um, yet yeah. It, it may get good enough that you know uh, that 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 I'm you know my my livelihood is in jeopardy. Um, but for the moment, I'm not that worried about it. Um, I think automation tends to – it does do what people say. It does destroy jobs, but it also creates other jobs, um, and more productive economies are wealthier economies. So, it, you know, provided you have a public sector that's willing to tax away wealth where it accumulates when this stuff happens uh, and redistribute it to ordinary folks, um, it's not inherently a debacle for the entire, uh, for the entire economy. But uh, you know the the period of adjustment can be very sharp, and you have and it's you know it's a big if is the public sector willing to uh, willing to do the distribution function that we currently have you know the, the bank teller system doing <laughs> yeah um, yeah that's a big that's an open question um, it, it's a political question and our politics aren't great right now so I think that, you know there are reasons to worry but there are also reasons not to panic. Well, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. This has really been a truly fascinating conversation. Uh, tell tell everyone where they can find your work and you and, and so on. Sure. I'm on Substack, just ZacharyDCarter.substack.com. Uh, and then I write for places like uh, Vanity Fair and uh, all kinds of magazines. Well, thank you so much, Zach. It's been so fascinating to talk to you, and I really appreciate you taking the time to come on. Thanks so much for having me. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, 
based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterized the early years of Black Twitter to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th.